When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, as always, with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. Yesterday, Rebecca, we recorded our first proper bonus content for Patreon subs. It is our summer 2022 preview draft we had a whale of a time maybe even a cuss word in there we should say that yeah. it's not a it's a we're not gonna you know we're not gonna work blue here necessarily all the time <laughs> but maybe a little bit more um one drink after work on a thursday vibes uh, i'd say something like that is that is we're, that close enough yes i think we're just like one tick blue in general, but this is the 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 podcast is our cleanest conversation every week for sure. Yeah, that's because, fair. That's fair. Know, because family yeah. audience and you know not having to mark things explicit on podcast apps is valuable. Uh, but we're gonna, I think we're gonna let ourselves. You know, it'll be a little bit more like the after dark vibe over on the yep. Patreon, but not totally dark, not super blue. Just you know, a little bit. It felt nice to be able to exclaim a thing. Mm-hmm. We also included as part of the episode, like us deciding how to run the draft and like ideas. So you're getting a little <laughs> back and forth. We're playing around and we're going to see. Thank you so much for those of you who have signed up already. Uh, shouts to Allison, Melinda, Lynn, Sarah, and Donna, who are the first five folks. So we thought we'd put you out there um, and, and get your name out into the air a little bit. Looking forward. So the draft, when, so for the Patreon folks, Rebecca, when will that Yeah. So just to talk a little bit uh, like broadly about the Patreon, Mm. which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash book riot podcast. Everybody who subscribes gets early ad free access to this show. uh, So you can start getting regular episodes, but early and ad free. So you would receive those on Fridays instead of, you know, late night Sunday or early Monday morning when they usually publish. And then special content bonus content only for patrons will appear on Tuesdays. So if you're listening to this on Monday, April, 18th, the um, summer draft will go live right. on the morning of Tuesday, the 19th, and then that's going to be the cadence every Friday. You'll see the regular episode appear ad-free in your Patreon feed. And then if there's bonus content, which we intend mm. to have something fun for members every week, um, whether it's a bonus episode or like five minutes of talking about a thing, or we might share um, some posts, you know, about behind the scenes stuff. But um, we know that you can have a variety of experiences with Patreon. I've had a variety of experiences mm-hmm. with Patreon. So to let y'all know, you know, we plan to be very consistent. This is part of our business model. Um, so it's going to be Fridays, early stuff, uh, early regular episodes, and then Tuesdays is the bonus stuff. And when you subscribe at the levels that unlock the bonus content, you also get access to the whole archive. Um, mm. So if you're jumping in now, you'll still get access to like the form that's live um, at the O'Neill's Razor level, because I had fun naming the levels of the Patreon. <laughs> Uh, but if you subscribe at that level, you'll get access to um, have priority for your requests for book recommendation shows like Moms, Dads, and Grads, which is coming up. So all yeah. of that is there, bookriot.com slash, or sorry, patreon.com slash podcast. We've been really excited to see the response so far. We're excited to have some more interaction with y'all and hear from you directly over there. So thanks for going along with us. Uh, yeah, Moms, Dads, and Grads coming up, podcast at bookriot.com. First come, first serve. We've had a wave come in we can still accommodate some more don't know how long that's going to last one other point of order before we get to our first break and then the rest of the show we're gonna have a clip at the end trying something else here clip at the end of the show listen all the way through it's a book called when the corn is waist high by jeremy scott it's a mystery thriller set in the 80s 1980s indiana um, small town that experiences a spree of murders and then a local priest who is also the sheriff finds himself on the forefront of the investigation as someone who lived in a farm townish college <laughs> town in the eighties in the Midwest, this freaks me out, but I'm the wrong, I'm the wrong person to be listening to this. But if it's freaking me out and you like to be freaked out, um, stick around and, uh, take a listen there. 
Yeah, I saw 1980s Indiana mystery thriller, and I was like, oh, maybe some Stranger Things vibes. But then I think the, yeah. uh, the whimsy of he's the priest and also the sheriff is deeply fun. So Sheriff Priest. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely like a D&D character. Um, <laughs> we could be the the, the, sure. the, 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 the mage uh, slash prince or something I'm like that. I'm already out of my depth on D&D references. Okay, well, that's fine. So. All right, well, let's take our first sponsor break, and we'll come back in just a second. We're going to do news stories first, and in the back half of the episode, we're going to spend some time talking about The Candy House um, by Jennifer Egan. So Sanderson, Sander, Sandersonia, Sander Swag, what do we, Sandersonville? What, I think this is the swagging. Sandersonversed, the swa- <laughs> swagging. Uh, this is a piece in Fansided um, by Daniel Roman. Uh, links in the show notes, as always, bookwright.com slash listen. Um Sanderson's just over 35.5 million Kickstarter um, broke the record by 11 million bucks, basically. That's what's it. But also went around and Sanderson started funding other publishing projects. But it turns out he backed every, every. single publishing project that was on Kickstarter as of March 25th. Which was more than 300 of them. <sighs> 316. Um, it doesn't look he like he... I don't... I, I'm not clear that he topped them all off. I don't think that's what happened, but he at least did some pledge for all of them. And so I didn't mm-hmm. go blow by blow, but it didn't... This person... Um, what's this guy's name? Daniel didn't do a full bore accounting. Also, because you really can't, you can't, I don't think, based on this. Um, but this... This to me is in excess of what was needed. I'm not of the camp that's like, well, he made so much money, he's got to go give 30% away as a sort of a tithe to the publishing church. I'm not of that opinion. <laughs> no. Um, though I'm glad to see it. So I think we're in the realm of cookies. That was my question to you. This is in the realm yeah. of cookies, not shouldas. This is great. Correct. Right? Yeah, okay. I think this is the realm of cookies. It's cool to see somebody have success like this and do some pay it forward, which is mm-hmm. how I had noted it in our agenda, you know, seeing Brandon Sanderson pay it forward. Also, not for nothing, Jeff, like this is a great PR move on Brandon oh. Sanderson's part. He made a video where his... YouTube subscribers watched him go through this process of backing all of these Kickstarter mm-hmm. things. And it appears, you know, completely genuine and earnest. I am not questioning Brandon Sanderson's motives here. He's like, we're going to do something really cool. He has just come out of, you know, running a Kickstarter and experiencing the dopamine surge that is watching those numbers, especially when they go to 35 million. I have experienced that dopamine surge for like a much smaller <laughs> Kickstarter, much, much like infinitesimally mm-hmm. smaller. And it was still very <laughs> exciting. Uh, so I, I think it's I understand this impulse to be like let's give other people this good feeling that's really cool um, but also super great PR and makes people continue to feel involved in his community like clearly you don't hit a 35.5 million dollar Kickstarter if you don't have a community of fans that are excited and feeling connected to you and your work and he mm. really seems to understand how to maintain that with his fans which I think is maybe the most interesting part of this. It's really hard to get that big. It's really hard to sell that many books. There's a lot of luck involved. But once you find yourself in that lucky position, if you are one of the rare few who does what you do to maintain mm-hmm. it and build on it, um, he's being really smart about that. Yeah, it's it, it's we have no idea how studied of a disposition this is. Um, it either comes right. somewhat naturally or has crafted himself into understanding how to do this. You do, I don't, you know, I think that he did this is not a consequence of getting 35 million for a Kickstarter. Everything that led him to do this mm-hmm. is the same kind of antenna about the internet yes. that says to him, here's an idea of how to publicly pay it forward, right? Um, because people were, there were people out there saying he should give a bunch of this away or do something else with it. And he has to do that publicly if he wants to, credit for it, which people would need to then know in order to mm-hmm. be quiet or be sated or whatever <laughs> right. about doing it, right? So there's there's the the public element of I think this is important. Um, my Midwesternness wants <laughs> this to be private, right? If this were me, just uh-huh. functioning for my own moral satisfaction, I would feel worse about doing it in a video where everyone's watching it. But he's not necessarily solving only for his heart, Right. Right. Um, maybe he is. Maybe this solves for it. Maybe he feels no squeamishes about making a, a video about it whatsoever. Maybe he doesn't think of that as a tax, um, so that the 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 moral check is slightly s- smaller. But whatever the case is, he knows what he's doing. 
And yeah. this is the kind of thing that suggests not only can he make a bunch of money, but he's the reason he made a bunch of money on Kickstarter is because he gets it, whatever the thing is. He gets it. Right. Like, do this. you know, he's had big book contracts before mm-hmm. and he didn't go around dumping out money from those publicly. There's something right. about the, and I assume when he has another big book contract in the future, it won't be like, well, I got a $35 million book contract. So let me go do some things with that money. There's something about, as you were saying, like the public nature of both the earning with the Kickstarter and then the spreading it around with going back and donating that he, he seems to understand how that, how each of those feeds the other and makes whatever his next step is more possible. If this is part of the deal that it takes to help people who gave him money continue to feel good about giving Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson money. Great. It's very, it's very smart. Great. Great. Um, because no one, I, and there's since we may have talked about this before, but I don't see a lot of people out there being like, "What's Delia Owens doing with her wind crawdad's windfall? Like, right. what's Colleen Hoover right. doing?" Yeah. And some of that is the, the because the publishing numbers, publishing sales numbers are so opaque. It's not as easy as seeing a story get passed around the internet and seeing a big fat chunk, thirty five million. But we're going to talk about a story in a minute. Like Hoover sold four hundred thousand copies in Q one. Right, that's a well, windfall, right? I mean, yeah, this is Daily Owens I, has sold four four million copies of Crawdads. That's a windfall. I'm not saying I'm not saying it should the the light should be pushed on them. I think there's something about Kickstarter all at once yes. and the unique nature of this that I'm not sure if it's fair or unfair, Sanderson, but it is unique. This kind of like, well, what's he going to do with that? Where's he going to spread that around? Yeah, I think it's the D to C nature of this, that he Mm. is selling these things directly to his customers. And when you buy these books from him, you're buying them directly from him. You're not buying them from Barnes & Noble or your local indie or it's not a mediated purchase in any way. And when we make mediated purchases, which most of our purchases are, it just, I think, gives us enough remove to not be thinking about like, you know, well, what is uh, what's James Patterson going to do with his royalties after my 20 bucks <laughs> goes through Barnes and Noble and then goes through his publisher and then finally makes its way to whatever percentage he gets? I, I think there's the direct connection between the consumer and the creator here that is a core part of yeah. people's desire to see him do something with it and then his understanding that it's important to be seen doing something with it. Yeah, the waterfall of going from you know, the store to the publisher to the the author to whatever, it kind of has a moral laundering effect, right? It like, does, you, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like people, the, the numbers aren't publicly available, or if they are, you really have to pay attention in a way that's not susceptible or amenable to like retweeting with what the hell, Brandon, are you going to do with all that money? Um, which is neither good nor bad. It's just, it is, it is different in kind. But, you know, the one person that we're, I mean, we see, James Patterson, I, we never really talked too much. Every now and again, we'll get the story about James Patterson giving a lump sum of money to bookstores mm-hmm. or you know, librarians or something like that. We haven't talked too much about the PR element of that, but it can't hurt. It cannot right. hurt um, any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, speaking of bookstores and PR, I'm going to scoot, scoot down one. I think I, Did you see this one? I put this in Slack, or did you find this independently, this bookstore trailer thing? Oh, I saw it when you put it in Slack. Okay. Yeah. I... I look at trailers.apple.com every now and again. Michelle and I do. Every, we like. I like trailers almost as much, much as I like watching movies. Um, frankly, one hundred percent. I always thought that um, movie theater should have a screen dedicated to just showing a bunch of theaters. So while you're waiting for your movie to start, you can just go sit in there. I would sit in there and just watch trailers <laughs> yeah, for an hour. There's- there's a channel on our cable because we still have cable for reasons of sports ball that mm. actually runs something called nothing but trailers. That is just I'm like an hour it. of movie trailers. I'm and it is it. wonderful. It's just yes. mesmerizing. So anyway, I didn't see this on any book related thing and I do this for a living. So I'm a little surprised, but there's this book called uh, hello bookstore, which we have got some SEO work to do on this. <laughs> Rebecca, the, 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 the bookstore's name is the bookstore. And the title of this film is called The Bookstore, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's about a small bookstore in Lenox, Massachusetts, run by one particular guy. The the marketing copy is a beatnik gem. I want to be a beatnik gem, I would say. Matt Tannenbaum. (laughs) The ship has sailed on you and beatnikness. No, it's true. He (laughs) looks like if you would cast a former beatnik independent bookseller, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. to me. I'm not sure there's anything to say about this, but it follows his story during the pandemic, but also it tells the story of him and his little bookstore. I don't know. I thought it was cool. I don't see stuff like this very often. I'm not sure what else to say about it. I just wanted to 
throw it out there and see if people are interested in you can find it and we'll have the link in the show notes as well bad branding on this like it doesn't say when you can watch this or where i had to go look it up it looks like it's coming out april 29th is that in movie theaters can i stream that at home Um, great questions it's a really like how how bookstore how come watch this movie (laughs) maybe too bad it's not a mystery bookstore (laughs) that would be awesome you have to go find it I hadn't, I hadn't, this is the kind of thing I would pitch to you offline, but this would be the kind of fun to watch and then talk about when it comes Yeah, I it think looks. There's pros and cons here, but I kind of want to save them if we end up doing that. Yeah, I think it looks charming as all mm. get out and it connects to a piece that I dropped into our agenda, but I think mm-hmm. is really more just worth mentioning than super diving into that um, Bloomberg had a piece this week about bookstores sales being driven by nostalgia and like folks are you know zooming back to barnes and noble and to independent bookstores because nostalgia with stories about like the kinds of things that i remember about being a teenager in the 90s and like sitting on the floor of a barnes and noble and reading a whole book in an afternoon which i'm sure barnes and noble loved Uh, but Mm -hmm. i have you know fond memories of that experience the bloomberg piece is fine. I think people do have nostalgia for bookstores, but also right now, in where we are in the pandemic, going back to anywhere is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I it, had nostalgia for the pharmacy in the middle of 2020. Right, so let's be careful. Right. Like, I got super excited to go to Target at one point. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think it it mentions like, hey, also maybe this thing is being driven by TikTok, but we think it's nostalgia. Like, this Bloomberg piece has zero data to suggest it's actually nostalgia but i thought it was interesting to see uh you know a news site talking about nostalgia for bookstores and then this documentary about just a super charming independent bookstore and a community rallying around it to help it survive the pandemic coming out in the same week uh, was an interesting you know Mm co-occurrence yeah so you can check out the trailer there and on april 29th you can watch this (laughs) let us know if you find it somewhere Mm -hmm. You know what I like to see about it, though? Hmm. The runtime. That's a tight one hour and 26 minutes. Ooh, we I do, can do love that. that. Mm-hmm. The Batman is coming out on... of anything. Yes. The Batman is coming out on streaming next week. I, for my birthday, I went by myself during the day to see the Batman, which was the best oh. thing that's maybe ever happened to me. Um, that's not true. I have a lovely family, <laughs> and I cherish them above all else, except maybe seeing movies by myself. But Michelle didn't she couldn't go i would have preferred she came with me to be honest i didn't choose that proactively she had to work um she's like okay when it comes on streaming i really want to see it because i thought it was fun and interesting batman and like okay we'll watch it some night it's three and a half hours long rebecca (laughs) you gotta you gotta spread that over like four nights yeah the batmans the batsmen i don't know it's gonna be a three night special event in the o'neill black household that is an investment that's a lot it used to be when the kids went to bed at 7.30, okay, we stay up late tonight. The kids go to bed at, they go to bed almost when we do, they go to bed at 8.30. I can't stay up at, anyway, no. this is tough. This is why TV, we're going to talk about more about TV, mm-hmm. can be so great. Because turning off Bat, the Batman at an arbitrary point, or any movie, frankly, I hate, I hate doing this. There might be people out there that can, like, I'm going to watch half a movie tonight. No. I don't know what that's, that's like eating half a piece of pizza. That's, that's <laughs> not the point, that's not how we do things here. No, that is not the experience that <laughs> you're going for. No, I hate it's it so bad. It's not the experience. Bad. I've been even yeah. having this. I'm really, I think, you know, I mentioned last week, loving Pachinko. And I've mm-hmm. been wired to think that an hour-long episode of television is really like 45 to 50-ish <laughs> right. minutes. Because there's either you're watching it on somewhere that you're going to have commercials of some kind, either cable or like ads coming up on Hulu or something. Or it's just trimmed because... Like an hour is a long time. And th- these pachinko episodes are an hour. They're worth every minute. But I have to like recalibrate for like, I'm actually sitting down for a whole hour <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. My kids and I and our family, we've really enjoyed like the Marvel streaming stuff. Like, oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. what Family Fair is right now. But we had to learn. I think we learned this Mandalorian or something else. But when it says 51 minutes, it's actually like 40 minutes of content because the Swedish and Mexican right. credits are... And like they do all the credits at once for reasons I don't yeah. really understand. Don't you know what place I am? Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But you're right. And when it's a full 55 minutes, you're like, oh, I was, in, I was supposed to be a bit 20 minutes ago. I thought this was all, this is all <laughs> right. trimmable stuff. It's like, is this worth my 10 minutes? And I don't want to split it up because I don't want to watch a movie over yep. two nights. 
that's not the life I'm about. Three, no. and I, you're going to have to let me know how many days it takes y'all to watch the Batman. Uh, you know, we're, it's bad when we have to calendar our movie watching. That's bad. <laughs> when we have to get the Google Calendar out to do it that way. The bookstore doesn't need that. On April 29th, wherever it is, it's probably going to be in some art house theater. I don't understand this. I don't understand this anymore. Just give it to me on HBO Max. Yeah. Pay these people that made this two hundred grand. Or can't be that much just to buy the right. Stream to it, it, baby. Just stream yeah. it. So that's Hello Bookstore. It looks charming. Um, this is really good silver hair cardigan and corduroy combo for Matt Tannenbaum here. I'm very jealous of all of it. So there we go. Uh, let's see. You know, I think we do need to talk about book sales year to date. This is something mm-hmm. we've been wondering about for a long time, especially when we're in the really like euphoric days last year of like, look at book sales up 20% year over year. Shouldn't surprise anyone. And I don't think it's bad. It's just the comps year over year are pretty bad or are tough because the comps last year were so good, but fewer books were sold in Q1 of 2022 than 2021 to the tune of, oh, I don't have the link open right now. And I had it in front of, do you have in front of you while I could open while I vamp here? It's uh, like down 8.9%. 8.9%. But that's off being up 20% year before. So we're still up over 2019, or excuse me, 2020 and 2019 quite considerably, though not all categories are created equal. The big loser in terms of percent, um, juvenile nonfiction, pretty directly um, attributable to school stuff, yep. I would guess. Kids there. are back in school. Um, the other big losers, adult nonfiction down 10.7%. Adult nonfiction is the single biggest category in mm-hmm. um, publishing. So a big percent there will drag almost everything else down. The only real winner here is adult fiction, up 6.8%. And um, Jim Millat in Publishers Weekly, link in the show notes there. It's This is very hard to know, but I think he does a reasonable job of saying, I think you can explain this by TikTok. The mm-hmm. big winners in TikTok are adult fiction titles. Everything yeah. else is down and these are the where the big winners are. And the big winners here are very, very big. We've talked about this. It's not a joke when I mentioned Colleen Hoover. That's not just shots fired. Um, it ends with us sold 400,000 copies in Q1. Verity sold 312. Um, and Reminders of Him sold 235. Uh, the Seven Husbands of, Eli- of Evelyn Hugo, good job on your debut novel. <laughs> Taylor Jenkins Reid <laughs> sold 268,000 copies in Q1, the the best or the best-selling new release in fiction was um, the Patterson, the Dolly Parter, the James Parterson Dollyness <laughs> crossover event, selling just under two hundred fifty thousand copies. So those backlist TikTok phenomenons, and we're not also we're not talking about Circe, we're not talking about Song of Achilles, we're not talking about Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, we're not co- talking right. about some of the other titles that have got a big bump there. Um, it's really mattered. It's interesting that it's romance and fantasy seem to be even the bigger winners within the adult fiction category. And it doesn't appear to be helping the other categories almost at all. The best-selling book of the quarter, Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a 28 title. I don't think that's a TikTok phenomenon. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate now. I'd be surprised if it were. I think people are going back to work. Yes. I think that's what it is. Fascinating to see. That made me wonder, Atomic Habits being, you know, surging like this four mm-hmm. years after its publication, I would love to see some like longer study about what happens with these self-help titles that get big and then have these moments. Because it was talked about when it was published. And then I heard it on podcasts and it popped up on like leadershipy, self-helpy kinds of things that I came across. But to see a big bump, I think you're right that this is driven right now by people going back to work and also to sort of reevaluating like, mm-hmm. how do I spend my time? What are the habits that I want to have in my life to feel good and stay healthy and maybe fight burnout all those kinds of things but we've seen other things like this you know big self-help or self-improvement businessy kinds of books that did just fine or even really well when they were published but get bigger over time Mm. and some of that's just word of mouth but some of it is a moment that happens around it or like a really interesting media placement i'm just curious about i'd love to see somebody take that on i don't want to take it on but if somebody no where where (laughs) what did the shape of those sales look like i think is a fascinating question Mm -hmm. can you ascribe any kind of catalyst to it moving up and to the right, right. off some other future, uh, past trajectory. These kind, and I don't, it's, it's too early to say, but business books, there's a reason there's a lot of them published and they get paid a lot of money, get paid a lot of money to write them in advances. 
like all books, most of them don't earn out. But almost like, it's almost more like children's books in terms of if something sticks around, it can. people are still buying the Carnegie book. That's mm-hmm. still like in the top 20 best-selling business books every year, sometimes in the top five, sometimes in the top one. That book came out in 1937, Rebecca Shinsky. So like, this <laughs> is... It's a lottery ticket annuity situation here if you if you hit these things right. I think we're in the point now where it's going to start joining some of these, you know, I don't even know, like the seven habits of highly effective people, yes. yeah. how to win mm-hmm. and influence people. Like we could probably name them off the top of our head that are not, they've broken out of even business books. They're people, they're books that people read for their lives, right? Yes. To make their lives better. Mm-hmm. And that's rarefied territory. And that rarefied ter- territory is super lucrative. And, and, and atomic is. habits look like it's going to be one of those. I think so. And it just, I think there's a point where it becomes like self-sustaining, where you get, Mm -hmm. if you get big enough like these titles, you get cited in enough places that then other people doing research around those subjects pick your book (laughs) up and they end up citing it. And that leads to more new readers, which feels similar to me in like academia, how it's it's a real 80-20 situation. Like 80% of the academic citations are from the same 20% of like top papers, maybe even a smaller percentage than that. It's, It's certainly the case that business and self-help books cluster around ideas and around like popular established titles and then refer like they just go back to that well over and over and i think you're right we're going to see atomic habits getting a permanent place on that shelf i'm gonna have to read it I'm, i was already it was our, I, we talked about this before i was already circling it you said it was pretty good now yeah. now the busman <laughs> himself i i have to have this in my belt now now it's I, now yeah, it's just I, for for pride I was going to say, I don't know that there's anything new in there for mm-hmm. you, but you know how those, there might be like one nugget that makes the whole thing worth reading it, which is kind of how those go when you've read a million yeah. of them anyway. So, Yeah. The other one here, the best-selling juvenile fiction of the quarter, weirdly the same number, 411,000 copies for Dogman number 10 um, mm. there. The Little Blue Truck, for those of you who haven't had kids uh, of late, <laughs> The Little Blue Truck is now... A monster. It's it's a little blue monster truck because it's this. My kids. We read it to the first one. I think we were in early on the little blue truck. I wish I would have bought stock in whatever this is. <laughs> but the little blue truck's Valentine. Now we have seasonal ones. Sold oh. two hundred and fifteen thousand copies. I don't remember this, and I haven't paid attention too much though. I had kids for almost a decade now. The seasonal holiday themed mm, children's yeah. book selling a quarter million copies is something that happens now. I don't remember that for Pfizer. I must have just missed it. Does that feel new to you at all? It feels new to me. I don't remember seeing anything like that on other, you know, like sales charts mm-hmm. that we were looking at. The only thing that I can remember that is seasonally predictable is, oh, the places you'll go is going to be a bestseller by this time next month. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, YA flat year over year. I'm not sure what to do with that. I, I would have thought, I guess it's not down. It's kind of right in the middle of these adult fiction titles that are getting a book talk lift. Um, mm-hmm. according to theory, but it's also not down. So maybe it's it's getting some boost, but only enough to keep it flat. You yeah, I guess it stands to reason if you are wandering into Barnes & Noble at 3.30 when the school bell rings to get your mm-hmm. latest TikTok book that happens to be adult fiction, you might also pick up yeah. a YA book and boost those sales. Yeah. And there are some crossovers for some of the fantasy books and some mm-hmm. of the romance book that could be YA. It depends on the get categorized. Um Mass market continuing to take it on the the chin, down another 21%, uh, just keeps falling. Trade paperback had the smallest decline, down 5%. Why, you might ask, because backlist ruled, mm-hmm. um, as it usually does, but even more so. Now, we talked about it when we recorded the bonus, uh, or the, the draft yesterday. There hasn't been a breakout hit. And looking at the next season, did anything we picked yesterday look like a breakout hit to you, Rebecca Shinsky? No, uh-uh. I think... We're not talking about breakout hits until we look at fall. Mm. And I was thinking about this last night after we recorded that Mm. maybe one of the ways to know about a breakout hit or even just the thing that we think is going to be the big book of the season is like, what is so big that we just take it off the board rather than fight over it the way like we didn't have we took. Yeah, we took Colson off the board in the fall. Um, Mm. Yeah, we didn't have one this season. We didn't have one going into winter. I wonder if the backlist situation that that we're seeing here is you need enough people to have read the book so that it becomes eligible to be picked up by enough people for the algorithm starts to get interested, right? Mm. Enough people talk about it, 
enough people interact with it because they've read that book or they've heard of that book at least. Yeah. And then you can start to get the wave going. But it's interesting that I, I, why backlist? Why not frontlist? Is fascinating to me to see. Will we see in a year some of the this current frontlist get picked up by the tidal wave um, of book talk influencing and it's a it's a powerful force and one that I certainly don't feel comfortable understanding right now and I don't think anyone really does now too yeah. other than waves are the ocean is big and powerful and <laughs> you sail it at your own peril if you sail it well you can you can do things but you can also be battered against the rocky shoals. Anything else here, Rebecca? No, in I think the, that's it. The sales? Yeah, I, I guess if we had guessed this time last year, about this time this year, would we be pleased, relatively speaking, as people who would prefer to see books do well on the whole? Would we have signed think, for this number in January? I would or have April signed. Of 20, yeah. yeah, yeah, I would have taken this because I think, and, and Jim Millett says it at the top of the piece, that this was expected. This yeah. is like... Uh, being surprised by this is like being surprised that fewer people need to buy Pelotons right now mm -hmm. than needed to buy them in the early part of 2020. It makes right. sense. Like we had surges that were attributable to things and then we're having a backing off that is also attributable to things. It's not a mystery um, why and how this is happening. It's cool to see book talks sort of ballasting it. Mm -hmm. uh, is ballasting a verb? Can you... Can, you just I did. Guess. We're you doing did. it. Yeah. I, I verbed it. Uh, so that's nice to see but yeah i'm not worried about this i would take this result yeah especially knowing that there wasn't a couple books out there they're like boy why did that swing and miss right yeah. i think that would have been a bigger problem if um i don't know i'm not even sure what title of like celeste ang's book comes out right i'm looking at that for the fall she's a new mm -hmm. book coming out in the fall yeah. that's crossover commercial slash lit fic that sells if something like that sells in the fall all will be right with the world interesting we're not looking we're not seeing any reese picks here like that's true. What's going on? I mean, again, we're only getting a limited subject, but what, what, what were the Reese picks doing compared to year over year would be interesting. Um, now that the mantle of influence has been, you know, um, egalitarian, algorithmized over at TikTok, I think that's what's happening. All right, we're going to do another break and spend a few minutes talking about uh, the Candy House. So stick around for that. Candy House by Jennifer Egan. Um, Jennifer Egan, we haven't done this in a while. Um, or ever, really, if you were good to create, you know, just brainstorm a list of the most important American novelists. Mm. You and I have gone on the record saying Whitehead is one for us. Mm -hmm. um, she's in the next tier. I don't know if she's number two, but for me, she's in the next tier. I think for most people, she's in the next tier. Um, really on the strength of four novels, when you think about it, we've got The Keep, um, we've got Visit from the Goon Squad, Manhattan Beach, and The Candy House. The Manhattan Beach, I really liked. It came out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It was more straightforward. Um, yeah. And I was a little unprepared to dive back into experimental or formalist Egan. Um, that was my initial thought. But before we get there, your most interesting comment to me, and we've talked about this <laughs> one line, was, I'm not sure I have much to say about the candy house. And talk to me about that, Rebecca. I think I would have found this book very exciting in 2012. Mm, say more about that. <laughs> well, I really loved Visit to the Goon from the Goon Squad, and that was 2010, and it felt new. It felt really new and fresh. Mm. The questions that she was asking, the way that she played with format, the sort of novel in stories, but in a really nonlinear, experimental fashion. I like playing with form. I know you like playing with form I do. when when you're in good hands. And you do feel like you're in good hands with Jennifer Egan. Like, I'm not worried about it all coming together in the end. But it just, it this one did not feel new to me in either format or the subject matter. Like, that it's a big work of fiction that's primarily concerned with the risks to both individuals and society of technology and social media about connection and alienation. I felt like I like I've watched black mirror and I've read a bunch of other mm -hmm. fiction that came out in like 2015 that did most of these things. And like on a sentence level, it's beautiful. She is masterful. I, I don't want to like knock it, but I was 
for my expectations of Jennifer Egan, which is part of the problem, right? Like mm-hmm. you bring in a set of expectations. I think if I had just picked this up and not known, this is Jennifer Egan. It's a big deal. It's been 12 years since the last novel. It does, you know, she does all these amazing things. I think I wanted it to feel as fresh and different as Goon Squad felt or as fresh and different as each Colson Whitehead novel feels from the previous Colson Whitehead novel. Like all mm. these questions are interesting and valid and they are conversations I want us to have in the culture. But I think that's ultimately where I landed. I was like, I don't have much to say about this because I feel like I've had these conversations. I think that's pretty interesting. I, it retroactively, I can understand the marketing trouble. What they call it? A sister book? A sibling. To, a, a sibling. It's not that, but it's not a sequel. It is a um, intellectual and artistic sequel to Goon mm-hmm. Squad. It is not a plot or character sequel, even though some of the same people show up in barely recognizable forms. And I did not read Visit from the Goon Squad before. Um, Me neither. I don't want to do that if I don't want to, if that makes sense. If it's not yeah, required, I don't, I don't want to do I, that. And it shouldn't be required to pick up think so. a reread 12 years later to prepare for a new book. I think your point about we've had a decade of technological spec fic in the form of mm-hmm. movies and TV, especially, and in culture and in genre stuff, frankly, yeah. that the freshness of taking on, taking it on, taking it head on, using a legacy medium to deal and using the tools of a legacy media, meaning print especially, mm-hmm. um, to deal and consider new f- ways of being and communicating and understanding the world, it felt new. This is more evolved. It's more complicated. It's less clear. I- I'm even going to start, I think I'm going to try to organize whatever I have to say around the cover design. Okay. The cover design is, looks like it's stitched together from 20 or 25 different sort of like techie wrapping papers is what it looks like to me. (laughs) Are you looking at yours right now? I am. I'm looking at it right now. And it has a unified aesthetic that doesn't symbolize anything Mm -hmm. other than it's stitched together from tech stuff. And I think that's not a terrible representation of the book. Is like Egan is not. I, I think she's trying to answer more or wrestle with more specific questions just than just technology is scary, huh? Right? Yeah. I think ultimately she starts to wrestle with what does an artist do if there is technology that can perfectly replicate experience? Because the big bad technology here is a technology where you can upload your experience to things, cloud, cubes, whatever. It's a varied forms, and I kind of lost track, honestly, with Rebecca, um, where your memories go, <laughs> that you, they can access, right, in a way that you, for whatever reason, we cannot access our memories on demand in the same way that this can do it. And then not only that, but that you could put on headsets and experience other people's memories of that same moment. You can stitch together multiple experiences of the same moment to have more of a 360 thing. And it's really trying to say, what if experience didn't go away? And what does that mean for art? What does that mean for life? I think weirdly we end with what does it mean for writing, which feels yeah. small after the <laughs> middle, right? That's where I landed with that too. Yeah. Which is the novelist prerogative, right? That's existentialist thinking for a novelist. And this is a book about what does one do if representation is no longer useful? It's, it's not unlike to me the problem of visual arts once you start to have cameras, like, what do landscape painters do once you have cameras? <laughs> and the answer was, we don't do that anymore. We, we do other, we go to abstract expressionism. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way that this is an abstract expressionist, technological, artistic, literary work. And it's, a, it's all over the place. And yeah. part of what she's trying to do, I think, is take multiple whacks at the representational pinata and see what sticks. And some of these segments... I was outright bored by and wanted to put the Mm -hmm. book down forever. And then as I got into it, some of them were genuinely thrilling. And that was my experience of the book. It doesn't, I cannot, what this book is about, I couldn't tell you the plot. There's some major characters. I think the plot is hard, if not impossible to follow and almost entirely beside the point. We get durable characters. (laughs) They, They show up multiple times. I don't know about you, but I couldn't keep track of who was who. Could you keep track of who was who? And how I told old you were? last week I was making a graph in the back of my book. Did that help like, you? Did that get you anywhere? It 
did only because I was like, I heard that name before and who yeah. was that guy? So it, it helped in that way that I didn't have to keep sitting in the feeling of, wait, who's that guy? But then mm-hmm. having the answer to who's that guy, I don't think meaningfully changed yeah. the reading experience of those pieces. Yeah, I think I landed in the same place at the end. Like there's a, a line at the very end where the character is ref- one of the characters is reflecting on like what it's like to live in this world where everyone can upload their consciousness. And as you were saying, then you can like search your own memories. You can search other people's memories. You can put it like, you don't have to wonder about anything. And then you don't also get the sort of weird magic thing that happens that when we just call up memories, we reshape mm-hmm. them. And um, there's no need to like fill in the blanks by telling a story. But the character says, knowing everything is too much like knowing nothing without a story. It's all just information. Information. And mm-hmm. I was like, did I just spend 350 pages for a fiction writer to make me an argument about why we need fiction? <laughs> well, like, yeah, I mean, because she said, like, look at all these vignettes that don't add up to a story. And it's nothing. And then That's also kind of a weird idea. The book is called a novel. It yeah. is in the title. It's on the cover. I have a quibble with that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. <laughs> If it's not a novel, I don't know, because it's not a collection of short stories. That's true. It's not an anthology. I mean, maybe it's it's hard to know. It's it's closer to to a collection of short stories, I would argue. Um, Yeah. What was was a piece that was genuinely exciting for you? Well, I thought there were two, two especially. Um, The one that was a a collection of emails, which... Mm -hmm. It was representing basically an influence chain where one of the characters is trying to get an interview with a aging movie star that she has recently found out is actually her father and he doesn't know it. And she's trying to connect with him. Mm -hmm. But she goes through the machinations of like PR land to try to hook it up. It's pretty funny. It spins out into overthrowing dictators and firing like... I just thought in that moment she was trying to represent an ecosystem using the medium in which that ecosystem exists, which is text messaging and email, right? Non-personal. Mm-hmm. And then seeing all the little fights and bloviations and aspirations and commendations and exasperations and embarrassments. I thought that was super successful and could have existed by itself, right? Mm-hmm. The other one that I, I don't even know if it worked, but it was interesting which was one of the main characters becomes some sort of like weaponized sex spy. Yes. Right? <laughs> and it's related to a series of what you think are instructions for her to complete her mission mm-hmm. that are so specific they can't have existed, right? Because they're, they're actually cause like, if you should find yourself like face down in a lagoon, it's like, wait a minute. That's a, that's... <laughs> Press the knob behind your left knee with your right yeah, hand. Yeah. Right. And so... It's it, it's relaying her actual experience as like this weaponized sex cyborg, right? Essentially is what she is. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, it was interesting. Could that story have been told through regular human prose? Probably. Does it add something to do it this way? Maybe. I'm not sure uh, at this point, <laughs> but it was different. Yeah, I thought that one was interesting. The one that I think I most wanted to like see on screen was there's a story about a character who really rejects all of this technology and everything that he perceives as being phony, Mm. um, kind of holding Caulfield vibes. But the way the thing that he does is go through the world screaming at random moments, like out in public, just to get a genuine reaction from people. And it's like very on the nose. And the way that people respond to him is very on the nose. But the idea that I think there are people that are floating through the world in this way of like everything feels fake or you don't know how to operate in technology or in the world of social media where things are a performance or to find some sort of authentic connection and that like flailing about to get any kind of response, which is just as performative as anything else, um, was a really, I thought, a really sharp and interesting take. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it, I guess is where I landed. I think Jennifer Egan is a super interesting thinker. Mm-hmm. I would almost just prefer to read a really great collection of essays from her about what she thinks about these things. It didn't, the, the fiction vehicle for this did, just didn't work for me, I don't think. I, I think I had to shed in the middle my page turner desire. 
I am glad it exists in the way that it does. I don't think a straight up regular third person close omniscient um, rendition of whatever happens here. I'm glad that this is tough. It is resisting. It's kind of interesting to me to think of it as resisting like the page turnery bestseller Mm -hmm. commercial fiction book that sells so well. It is saying that mode of representing our experience doesn't work. That's its claim, essentially. There's this phrase mm-hmm. that one of the writing teachers used called empty casings. The yeah. spent casing of language and, and, and representation no longer hold any value. That bullet is spent and all that is less, left is the casing. And in order to say something new, you got to try something new. you got to express something new. And this is a search for, I don't think this is an answer to, but this is a search for other ways of using printed because it's not all text, right? Some of this is right. is using the email with the timestamps and the little arrows and everything. It's using print. It's expanding the toolkit of print to say, does this durable human tool still have the ability to get its arms around where we are? And the answer is maybe. Yeah, I think that's And right. I think that's fair. And I think mm-hmm. that's useful. Um did I I didn't enjoy reading it. I'm super glad I read it and my brain once I was done, I was like I was like you was like I have nothing to say about that. But in the days since, the wheels are turning and I that's, mm. you know, the wheels are turning for me. What the candy house refers to, maybe I missed it. I don't know what the candy house is. Do you? Did you get that? Yeah, there's a reference in one of I, the stories. I must have to, skipped like, it in when the middle. It's, there, it's, she's talking about the internet and social media okay. and one of the characters says never figured, trust a candy house. I figured that. I figured that. Um, yeah, and um, I think I'm also glad that I read it. I do. I love to be in the hands of a, a masterful writer and mm-hmm. you are in the hands of a masterful, masterful writer here. It, it will all come together. The pieces that need to make sense, make sense. <laughs> and I think she's a good enough and masterful enough writer to know that she's making choices where mo- like most people are not going to track all of these characters from place to place and that it doesn't matter. So some of the game is trusting readers to figure out what doesn't matter and cast it aside. And most fiction is not willing to ask readers to do that kind of work because that is a barrier to entry. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. when an author is willing to challenge readers in that way. It's a, it's a bold move on the part of a writer. And I think on the part of a publisher to take a really challenging book like this from a, a really shiny big name or what yeah. what once was a very big shiny name because this is not the kind of book that people are going to like gobble up and then recommend widely to each other in a word of mouth situation because it's challenging because right. if you pick if you're just if you're like an average american reader an average nope. not being pejorative just truly being descriptive who picks this up in the airport because they remember that people like jennifer egan this is not the experience you think you're going to get when you pick up just a book with a pink weird cover that is called a novel and it's maybe about technology and some things. And I think that's good. I think it's intentional. Like it, the ways that this is messy, yep. I, I feel are ways that Egan is aware of and is trying to do on purpose. I'm just not sure it was completely successful for me or maybe it would have been much more successful for me like seven years ago. And at the, I don't know, the thing I can't get around is this really wonderful short story collection I read in 2015 called Children of the New World by Alexander Weinstein that had as one of its main stories the idea that people upload their consciousnesses and one of the ways that you date is deciding which level of your mm-hmm. consciousness at different times you make available to the person that you're in a new relationship with. So it just felt like ground I had trod before in some way. And that's, that's not going to be the case for most readers. I know that's my idiosyncratic case. Mm -hmm. I probably will chew on this more over time. I don't know. I don't think I'm, if if we're doing our math of like at the end of the year, what's the top 10% of things we read that we would keep. I don't know if I'm keeping it, but we'll, I guess we'll see. It almost certainly will be for me. Just that I'm glad that, I mean, this is experimental, bordering on avant-garde fiction published by a big five with a huge market. I mean, we just don't see these. So I'm so glad it yeah, exists. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's more, ch- I, my memory is it's way more challenging than Goon Squad. Mm-hmm. Now, is it different in degree or kind, I think is an interesting debate. Because you're saying, and I think I agree with you, it more differs in degree. Maybe over time, I think it is actually trying to take 
it up, down, around a notch a little bit differently. Grad schools are going to have a field day. Congratulations <laughs> to all of you in grad school. <laughs> yes. Well, you're so welcome. <laughs> the book that launched a thousand theses. Yes. And from a, from a sensation of reading experience, I liked Manhattan Beach better, but I would prefer Egan do another one of these than another one of those. That's the only thing. I, I think that's as clear of a, of a recommendation I can give. If you like... Lit, this is lit fic, boarding on spec fic. Like in a lot of ways, it's the apotheosis as visit from the good one presaged of mm. spec fic becoming the leading edge of literary writing yeah. itself. I think you can tell in the writing that she's been thinking about these ideas for yeah. 12 years and yeah. there are real benefits to the complexity there. And it's also hard to feel new and current when it's issues that the rest of culture has been Mm -hmm. wrestling with for now 10 or 15 years. I'll be, I'll definitely, I'm going to keep reading her. I'll be interested in whatever she's, whatever she does next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one just was not all my bells and whistles. Probably you wouldn't picked it number one overall in your spring draft having read it. We'll say that in terms of (laughs) votes. Yes. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do some reflecting upon the success or not of our winter draft picks over on the Patreon in a couple weeks. And that will be one of my notes there is I don't know that I would have come out the gate (laughs) with this one if I had known what it was going to be. Yeah. My, my guess is that at the end of the year, it's, it might be on some list, but people, it's people aren't going to recommend it to each other. It doesn't, it doesn't do those things, which their contrarian me is like, good. Don't recommend to each other. <laughs> yeah, she's going to get nominated for some awards, and she she's probably fine. should. She's yeah, fine. she's going to be she's all right. Fine. Yeah, well, that's the Candy House by Jennifer Egan. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we talked yeah. about it. If you've got and thoughts, email us at podcast at bookwrite.com. Yes, please do. Uh, as always, you can find links to the show notes at bookwrite.com slash listen. Email your moms, dads, and grads, or you, recommendation yes. requests to podcast at bookwrite.com. It's taking those for at least another week. Stick around um, to listen to an excerpt from When the Corn is Waist High. See if we were right about the vibes there. I'm not telling you what if you were right or wrong at this point. No one will know. Um, then also check out the Book Riot uh, Podcast Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. You can get, you know, see all the levels there. But for those of you who are on one of the levels where you get the bonus stuff, the winter, or excuse me, the summer preview draft is in the can. We had a whale of a time. And I think there's a few books on there that you will hear us talk about in other formats uh, for good or for ill. I'm not exactly (laughs) sure at this point. Uh, Rebecca, as always, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon.